Welcome everyone to Be Her Talk with Selena Hill, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip hop, AOC, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, I discuss race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic black millennial perspective, and I give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave your comments on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and I will read them throughout this show. Now, I'm super excited to be here with you all. Number one, we weren't uh, here two weeks ago. We were here two weeks ago, not last week because of the holidays. So I'm happy to be back. Um, I'm also happy to talk about some of the biggest stories of the week. Everything from Derek Chauvin's attorney arguing that he deserves a shorter sentence because he's a product of, I quote, a broken system, right? Um, to the debate over transgender athletes in sports to the spreading of Trump's latest lie that he will somehow be reinstated in August. Yeah, that's not my president. It was never my president. Um, and later on in the show, I'll be joined by filmmaker Amber J. Phillips, who will talk about the intersectionality of being fat, black, and queer. Now, please remember to support Be Her Talk by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Be Her Talk. Your support through a small donation will help us continue to support and amplify the issues and the causes that you care about. So today I'm joined by Evan Masternardi. He is the co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash and a Bronx organizer for Rank the Vote NYC. He's not in the Bronx now, hence the background. Happy Pride <laughs> Month, Evan. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to support all our LGBTQIA plus brothers and sisters during this month across all spectrums. And that's what Let's Not Be Trash tries to do. We were ranked number six by that community in clubhouse room. So I am honored as a just a cishet dude that they would rank <laughs> us that way. So thank you. That's please follow deal. Let's Not Be Trash. Yeah, yeah. And of course, please follow Be Heard. We also have with us Michelle Hope, who is a sexologist, activist, and writer. How's it going? And happy Pride, Michelle. Happy Pride, honey. We're here. We're queer. Get used to us and celebrate us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to kick things off with the News Roundup. This is where we run down the stories that made us laugh, cry, and go on a profanity-laced Twitter rant and maybe even block a few of our friends. So I'm gonna throw it over to Evan to talk about those stories. Oh no, hope nobody got blocked this week, but you never know. Uh, I always like to add the walk a flock of meme, the eye roll, because sometimes the stories just make me do that. But I'm a, I'm a proceed. So first up, as Selena mentioned earlier, Derek Salvin's attorneys are requesting a shorter sentence and included that he is a product of a broken system. Now, before I even get to that, they added, you know, of course, he's a family man. He's more than just this act, has over a decade in this department. You know, some of these things, aside from the department thing, we can also say about many of the victims of police brutality, of course, but mind that. But also he's a product of a broken system, the broken system that activists have been talking about forever that has killed black and brown people in this country. But now we're applying it to the police that they are a product, that somehow their actions are, I don't know, lessened or more palatable. This is just insulting. But I'm going to ask this. First of all, do we think that this will actually be a good defense? Second, is there any way to kind of turn this on its head 
and use it to actually help the broader movement to expand upon, oh, even they're saying this is broken system. Well, let's capitalize on that. I don't know, but I'm going to go with Selena first on this one. First of all, yes, he's correct. We do have a broken system, a system that puts him as a cis white man in favor and gives him all the privilege in the world, literally. So I don't know why he's crying like wolf on this point. I, he literally killed a man without remorse by suffocating him for nearly 10 minutes and the world watched. Um, you know, he, he deserves the 30 year sentence that prosecutors are calling for. And, you know, for the defense, first of all, I saw this coming. I knew that they were going to try to argue a, a shorter sentence. And that's why when even though Derek Chauvin was convicted, I still had bated breath because I'm like, he's not locked up and he may get a slap on the wrist. He may be locked up for five years, 10 years, whatever. Um, let's not forget, not only did he def uh, brutally kill George Floyd, he traumatized his family. He traumatized a community. He traumatized the world. Um, you know, Derek Chauvin, I, I just, it, it's hard to find any remorse for someone who lacks remorse. But again, they're playing up him as a white man. And they're saying, like Evan said, he's a family man. He doesn't have any, uh, you know, his, his record is clean. But I would Stop. love to take a look at his record and see how Stop many playing. other people. Okay, so his record is not clean. Did he kill other people while on the force? Yeah, I mean, he's gotten complaints against him several okay. times. And on top of that, he actually had altercations with George Floyd. At least I'm going to go by the reports I read that he actually had altercations with George Floyd prior to this. So I, I was very, uh, I think it's quite ambitious in the worst way to actually talk about the exact system that killed George Floyd. But as I mentioned, can this backfire against them? Will it? And is there a way to maybe say, oh, even they're saying this? Well, if even his defense is saying this, then it definitely must be true. We have a real broken system. Michelle, what do you think? Michelle may be on mute. I think you're on mute, Michelle. Yeah, well, we're having some. Good. There you go. Super sorry about that. Yeah, I think that um, the system has been broken for a long time, and it will continue to be broken if we allow the lessening of sentences in instances just like this. Additionally, I think we should take it back to the need for our U.S. Senate to pass the Justice Floyd or George Floyd Justice, Justice Policing, yeah. uh, which would eliminate qualified. Thank you. Which would eliminate qualified immunity. I think that is the way we have to go. All right. Well, to move on to a different type of uh, discussion about uh, discrimination, perhaps, and justice, transgender athletes have made a lot of headlines lately because of how they have been treated by state governments. In seven states, I believe Florida is the latest, uh, they have been barred from participation, uh, specifically uh, trans women participating in women's sports. So. I'm gonna ask two questions. One, what is this fair? And two, what are the alternatives? Should we even consider gender in sports? I know that's kind of a separate question, but I think that's the logical conclusion where this is going. We should consider, should we even consider gender in sports? But first, let's also ask, what is is this even a fair decision? I'm gonna start with Michelle and then we can go to Lynn. 
Michelle may be having some technical difficulties. Michelle, we can't hear you. You may want to log off and then log back in. I personally can't hear Michelle, and I think she's frozen. What about you, Evan? Yeah, I can't. I can't hear. Okay, so we'll have to drop Michelle down. And okay, is she back? No. <laughs> we'll we'll have right, so to. So Selena, yeah, yeah. So I'll just go to you, Selena. First, do you think this is fair? Second. Do you think we should even consider gender in sports going forward? Yeah. So, okay. Number one, being transgender itself in sports in any part of society is not fair. And we have to continue to stand up for our transgender brothers and sisters for their rights so that they have, you know, free access to all things. However, when you ask that second question, should there be gender in sports? My answer is, of course, there should be. And the reason why there are physiological differences between people who are born female and people who are born male. And in the same way that we separate male and female athletes, it's the same way we separate children from teenagers, right? Would you have a 15-year-old compete with a 7-year-old in a soccer game? Of course not. Um, and, and would we have um, adults competing with Teenagers, no. I mean, it's statistically, when we just yeah. look at the science, and look, I'm no expert, so you know, feel free to, to argue back once I'm done. But you know, if we, we look at the science here, um, the one of the fastest uh, teenage boys, he he won uh, the national, the the New Balance National Outdoors in 2019, which was a, a relay race. Um, he came in. 100-meter uh, dash with 10.3.5 seconds. Again, a teenage boy won national competition. An Olympic gold medal, the fastest woman in 2019 at the 100-meter dash, Shelly Ann Frazier, she came in 10.7 seconds. So that's the comparison there. Do I think she should be competing with, you know, it, it's just so, of course, that's why we have gender in sports. It's because people who are born male because of different genetics, testosterone, estrogen, et cetera, they have a huge advantage. You know, statistically male bodies are more athletic than those who are born female. So I do think that we need to explore this topic. Maybe we have open competitions where you're mm -hmm. measured on genetics and you're measured based on testosterone levels, just so that no one is put at an unfair advantage. And book, I'm no athlete, so so go ahead. Well, I would have this to... is the thing. Michelle's um, back. Oh, okay. Um, I, I just want to say the reasoning you just gave, though, just as my small rebuttal, is the reasoning a lot of people are giving to not allow transgender people to play. Because they see different testosterone levels. They see people who are not necessarily in full transition. They see people who are identifying by a gender, but may have physical attributes, biological attributes that are still different. So that's still the same argument. That's why I brought this second question in because technically they are very much related. But Michelle, you go next. Well, I think what we have to remember here is that there are athletes out there that female athletes, female athletes born female that could play um, and would be able to beat men. Can I just bring up our US women's soccer team? I think they would mop the floor uh, with the men's soccer team. And I think that what we have to remember is that, especially when it comes to youth, things like sports give them an opportunity to have camaraderie, to build their self-esteem. And when we look at the trans laws that are rolling out across the nation or these anti-trans laws, they're really impacting our youth. So we have to remember 
that young people need opportunities to explore sports and shouldn't be held back from participating in them. And perhaps that means we do all gendered athletic teams. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. Oh, go, you go first, Lena. Oh, thank you, Evan. Yeah, no, so, so that was the argument there. And there was um, a lawsuit that you know developed into a nat- to national headlines where the, the girls on a, a track team said that they were put at a disadvantage and were losing because they were competing against athletes that identified as transgender. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, again, when I, when I talk about it from that perspective, it's, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, some of that anti-transphobic rhetoric we're hearing when they're like, oh, I don't want my daughter in a locker room with someone who identifies as trans. No, that's transphobic. Again, when it comes down to just the statistics and then when Michelle made her point about competing, you know, Serena Williams and, and Venus Williams famously made a statement back in 1998 where they said they would uh, beat any man who ranked outside of the ATP top 200. They would beat them. And it was Karsten Bashach who challenged them at two. He ranked 203rd ranked uh, player at the ATP. And he challenged them and beat Serena six to one and then Venus six to two. And Serena said in response, and I quote, I didn't know it would be that difficult. Quote, I played shots that would have been winners on the women's circuit and he got them very easily, end quote. So again, when I'm just talking about the physiological differences and that's why I said maybe an alternative is have open sports where you have some competitions that are again measured by um, how these people, how everyone measure up against each other. Well, on open competition, uh, I'm just kind of half editorializing here. I I would not do on testosterone i would do on straight up ability i believe in letting people's ability let the chips fall or they may let people's ability lead them to where they can go like michelle said like you said there are women you know in the in our soccer team and i would say in our wnba who can certainly beat men on the court there are women baseball i'm a big baseball player there are women who are starting to play with men on baseball teams. We saw in the little in little league a few years ago there was a, a a woman, well, a girl pitcher who was just striking men out at no at, at any rate. Now, will that be different in some sports, like let's say American football, and maybe in some running sports? Maybe, but why not have it open and allow the best abilities to come forth? That's how I see this ultimately playing out, because. I know you didn't mean it that way, but the reasoning you're giving about biological differences for men is exactly what people are saying for transgender athletes. It's a spectrum. So they're saying, well, maybe they wouldn't be on one end of the biological spectrum. It's still significantly putting women at a disadvantage. So I think truly it should be open to all gender and just let- Even if it puts win. women, right, let ability, so you, based on the ability. Let ability, okay. let ability Which is win. what I was saying. Yeah, let ability win. So. I'm glad we uh, had that spirit of discussion. Sorry, you were right, Selena. My phone did lock, but I'm <laughs> opening it now. Let's move on to NYC Pride Parade. So there used to be, um, sorry, I see I'm blocking myself. There used to be uh, gay LGBTQIA police officers in the parade. Now, NYC Pride, um, of course, you know, New York City Police Department has always had a history of abuse, but this year they decided to ban the police from marching with them. Additionally, 
I read that they want public safety officers not affiliated with the NYPD to be uh, more of the first line of defense and only for absolute emergencies should the NYPD be involved, whether or not NYPD will adhere to that, we don't know. But they won't be marching in the parade and they will, the organizers and the members will at least try to use a different public safety force, which is what many of us have been talking about, alternatives to public safety, but, and only using police in absolute emergency. First, is this fair, do you believe, to ban the gay police officers? And two, is this going to make people less safe or more safe, or does it not matter? What, Michelle, I'm gonna go with you first. I think what we have to remember is that when it comes to the LGBTQ communities, police have oftentimes been more of a threat than they have an actual um, help. And I think that by utilizing um, other security services or other um, first responders and individuals that can be that first line of defense, I think we're creating a pride that is more inclusive and feels safer to people. And I think that's really, really important. And beyond that, I think this is gonna be a great litmus test of how we can continue the conversation of not using police in certain areas that are not warranting officers. For the outside, just a small follow-up, don't go, Selena. For the public safety aspect, yes. What about the uh, decision though to not let gay officers march in the parade? Well, um, I feel like if you show up not as an officer, but as a public citizen and choose to align yourself with one of the plethora of organizations that participates in the pride parade i don't see a problem with it i think it boils down to the uniform and right. what the uniform brings up for people right and i think that right. that in itself is important right definitely definitely thank you for that selena what do you think yeah no i would have to agree with michelle there i, I think that you know police especially especially for a number of um, marginalized communities they solidify and signify uh, danger itself. Like how many times have police showed up to rallies, marches, or even to break up fights and someone is shot dead. And with that example, I'm referring to Micaiah Bryant, the 16 year old who was in some type of altercation and ended up dying after she called police herself. So because of the lack of safety measures put in place between um, the police institution and these marginalized communities, a lot of us don't trust them. So that is understandable. And, you know, like Michelle said, if they want to show up, they are more than welcome to, but they do need to understand uh, uh, just what they represent there. And even if we, we go back to Stonewall, uh, the reason why, you know, something that really initiated the, the pride movement that we have now is because of what police did uh, back in the 1970s when they stormed um, this gay bar and ended up, you know, killing, harming so many people. So, you know, th that the stigma and, and that history still still bears a lot of fruit. Uh, absolutely. Um, thank you both for your views on that. To close out the news roundup, high school valedictorian Texas ditched her speech. I'm sorry, she ditched, high school valedictorian ditched her speech to discuss abortion laws in Texas. This was incredibly brave. And uh, I mean, for someone so young to have that foresight and to use her platform, I think uh, makes a true difference. And it just got me thinking, uh, it may be unfair, but should we call 
upon because so many people have failed us representatives have failed us activists have failed us and in, in some ways should we call upon more youth or just more younger you know younger people to use any platform they have to kind of do i'll call it a, a good bait and switch kind of say i'm here for one reason but now that i have your attention i'm going to talk about this do we think that maybe this is a movement young people should be using um, whether it's on a graduation or some other platform they have, or is it, you know, unfair to call upon our, our youth to do this? Because maybe certain people will listen there who wouldn't listen otherwise. Evan, we actually have a clip. Can we play the clip first? Of course. This is a problem, and it's a problem that cannot wait. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights a war on the rights of your mothers, a war on the rights of your sisters, a war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. Yeah, so, so you know, when I look at that speech, uh, I felt every word. I was so proud of her as a young person, the valid Victorian standing up for uh, an egregious abortion law in Texas and her using her platform to denounce it. It was a beautiful thing. But however, I can't help but wonder, would we be supporting her and this tactic if she decide if she fell on the other side of the spectrum on this issue and was pro-life and was and, and talked about why and how, um, you know, we need to, you know, be preserving life and whatever rhetoric that she wanted to use. Would we still fear, you know, support her for standing up? No. Oh, of course not. But well, I, I mean, not, per <laughs> not me personally, not me personally, but I'm talking about in, in the lens of uh, more rights or more just rights. Do we, do we think that maybe this is a new movement that the youth should use to kind of use whatever platform they have? And like I said, kind of do a bait and switch like, Oh, you think I'm here for this? Well, I got something else for you. Uh, Michelle, what do you think? Well, I personally think every time I see that clip, I get emotional thinking about that. Now, I would also like to ask, would we have supported her if she was not Caucasian? Uh, mm. Or would her mic have been shut off and security flood in to uh, remove her? Uh, I think that if you can use your privilege and then flip the platforms that you've been given by the privilege that you have come to experience by all means. But I do think that it can get dicey because at any moment, if we celebrate freedom of speech, somebody could flip that very easily to a pro-life uh, type of conversation. Um, but I think young people have always been at the helm of movements and we as their elders should support them and amplify them in any way. And when they get creative, I say, let them get creative, you know? Mm. All right. I'm with you. I think that this is part of the, the new guard, the new movement to kind of, uh, use your platform, even unexpected ones to get a very much needed message across. Uh, thank you, Selena. That will be the news roundup. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Evan. Appreciate all of those stories. Now I'm going to go through some stories that made me say, really, as of the past week. Starting with this. So Trump has falsely claimed that he will be reinstated in the White House in August, right? So we all know that Trump is not well. And his delusions and lies have not stopped since he left office. But are we shocked 
No. Okay. And just, just wanted to temperature check the room. The National Review reported that Trump does indeed think that he will be reinstated later this summer. But to be clear, this will never happen. It's just further evidence that the Republican train of mediocrity, lies, and literal doom has not let has not yet met the station. Really, what is it going to take to get these nuts out of here? I'm not sure. And another thing, speaking of Trump and Republicans, only two people have pled guilty to the Capitol attack. So I know you saw it. And they know we saw what they did on January 6th. So what's going on? Are we really going to let the whites and their crazy cult-like Trump-supporting POC gang get away with literally trying to overthrow the government or mask mandates and the visceral cries to give Black people equality, equity, and reparations that we built? And for those who, who may say I'm being divisive, allow me to put it this way. Hundreds of angry, entitled white Americans, whether they were police officers, teachers, nurses, church leaders, etc., they went to the U.S. Capitol to overthrow the government with a vow to kill anyone who tried to stop them. And they did it all in plain sight, literally trying to start a civil war. And the response from police officers was no tear gas, no deadly force. They did not dare treat those people the same way they treat Black Lives Matter protesters at all. And now only two have pled guilty? Really? Like, we saw y'all. Anyway, last thing. So we're going to end on a little bit more somber note with the really segment. So Jasmine Harton, who is a 32-year-old white socialite married to the son of a UK billionaire businessman, Lord Michael Ashcroft, was charged with manslaughter by negligence after fatally shooting a black police officer while under the influence of alcohol in Belize. She and San Pedro Superintendent Henry Germont were allegedly partying together and she ended up giving him a massage, which is crazy because then she claims that nothing romantic happened between them two, whatever. Uh, and then things took a drastic turn and she ended up using his gun and shooting him. Now, this woman, who's also a mother of two, was initially uncooperative with authorities, uh, and but she eventually confessed to accidentally shooting the officer after he threatened her with cocaine possession charges. Now, manslaughter in Belize typically leads to about 25 years in prison, but she is facing a maximum of five years and possibly just paying a $10,000 fine. Now, we all know there is nothing more American than a white woman being responsible for a black man's death and then getting a slap on the wrist for it. However, this tragic story of a black man being murdered by a British heiress is really, really just another reason, just more evidence that shows racism is a global systemic issue that far outlives and expands. America. Now, I'm going to kick it back over to Michelle, who's going to make something that does not make sense, try to make sense. I'm throwing it over to you, Michelle. 
Listen, let's make it make sense. Transgender killings in the black community have been on the rise. And since 2013, the HRC and other advocates have tracked more than 200 cases of anti-trans fatality violence. And that goes across 30 states and 110 cities nationwide. Now here's the problem, which I need us all to do the work to make it make sense because it never will. This epidemic disproportionately impacts trans women of color who comprise approximately four of five of all anti-transgender homicides. Listen, three of four of known transgender victims or non gender non-conforming victims are oftentimes not even reported to the police and or reported appropriately in the media. So when we talk about the stats, 2020, we saw 44 known murders of trans or gender non-conforming people in the US and surrounding territories globally, that was 350. And this year alone, we know of 28 murders that have already taken place in our trans communities. These are our brothers and sisters. And here's the deal. That means that this year we are on record to see another like groundbreaking record of fatalities of trans communities. So listen, only when we can remove the shame of loving transgendered people, will we be able to move to a space that violence can cease against them. When we can remove the shame of being transgendered, will trans people find it easier to disclose as well as disclose violence that they are experiencing? There are a ton of LGBTQ laws that don't protect and actually go against LGBTQ trans communities and they are problematic. And here is the issue. When we see violence in the trans communities, we have to understand that that is not just the underlying problem. It's the problems with our legislation and all these anti-trans laws. April alone, we saw a hundred state bills across the nation that were put into effect and trying to be passed that would continue to discriminate. So how do we help? It's up to all of us to do the work to make our communities more trans inclusive. And as I give this rant, you see the names of people who have passed. You see the faces. These are our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, our mothers, our aunties. And it is important for us to come together. So what we can do is we can make our communities safer by having conversations. We can support and elevate transgender voices in the media, a really great resource, trans tech social enterprises started by Angelica Ross. And we can raise awareness of the issues transgender people face. Listen, the intersectionality of racism and sexism and classism and homophobia in general are very, very complex. But if we start to take the steps that we need to, to protect each other, we can live in a better space. But at this point, it seems as though our country is empty of empathy for our trans communities. And it is my hope that we can continue to support organizations like the HRC or the National Black Justice Coalition and other organizations that can help liberate trans lives because they are just important as our lives. Thanks on that one. Y'all got to help me make it make sense by doing the work. Thank you so much, Michelle. We appreciate your words of insight and wisdom.
um, and for just talking about this issue, which is not talked about enough, especially in black communities. So we appreciate that, thank you. And in the spirit of intersectionality and Pride Month, we actually wanted to dedicate the last half of our show by highlighting Amber J. Phillips, a storyteller, a filmmaker, an art director who released a powerful short film titled Abundance that explores what it means to exist in the world as a black, fat, queer person. Amber, thank you so much for joining our show today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, yes, yes. So you have a three-part series. I was able to watch part one. I think we also have a clip. I want to show the clip now so that folks can feel the documentary that you uh, have released. My responsibility to myself and the communities that I belong to are not to just wear cute clothes, though one of my favorite pastimes, or tell you how to feel confident about your body. Literally feeling confident about your body is just me believing that I actually deserve to be here. How absurd is that? Like, yes, I, I think I deserve to be alive. That's what you want me to feel confident about. Yes, I am fat, black, and fly. And I'm so much more than trying to fit into jeans, dresses, and airplane seats. This documentary is so beautifully produced. Girl, you look so beautiful <laughs> and sensual. I was just like, your skin was glowing. I was just like, the art direction was so beautiful. You looked amazing. I was like, whatever she does on her skin, I need that. It was just so eloquent. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. So, um, you know, in this documentary, you draw on your, your life experiences as a Black fat, queer, femme woman. Tell us more about it and your inspiration for creating it. Yeah, so it's I, I love when people call it a documentary because when I sat down and wrote it, I'm really inspired by some of our great writers like um, Disha Phil, y'all, who wrote The Secret Life of Church Ladies, of course, James Baldwin, um, and Toni Morrison, who is squarely in um, writing these stories. But it was important to me to kind of add these stories from my life, but um, present them in a way of, um, you know, some of the experiences that I talk about, like in the first story, is about me getting on an airplane and just being harassed by this woman who was sitting next to me, right? And I wanted to really call into question how many of us do see fat people existing in the world beyond just like your typical Savage Fenty or Lane Bryant um, ad, you know, when we're dressed well and snatched together um, and be like, how are we treating people in public? Um, do we know that these people belong to folks? Do we see ourselves in these people? Um, so it was important for me to tell that story um, beyond that moment because when it happened, it went viral um, because it was one of those moments right around like the barbecue Becky situation yes. and really and white people calling the cops on black people for doing nothing. That's what um, I was going to say, Amber. It was a white woman, just to be clear. And didn't she call the cops and weren't yeah, you escorted she, off the plane? I, w I was um, 
our plane had actually landed and I was escorted. You've ever been to DCA. I was escorted off of the bus that takes you to the airport, right? Like when you know how you land sometimes on the, on the strip, they literally came and got me off the bus because this woman told my, our flight attendant that I harassed her, who was another white woman. And they just like agreed that this woman had been harassed. And I'm like, actually it was the other way around. So when that moment happened, I was, traumatized like i it i i put a lot of my work online i didn't feel comfortable like being online anymore i was being docs which is a term that a lot of us are becoming aware of um where like literally someone threatened me via text message to my phone and i wanted to retell this story in my comfort and in my power and what happened afterwards and what i learned about it going into that situation and what i hope to take out of it so there's a real reason why i'm like this part of the story is very sensual because i am a sensual person we some you know there's outside of colorism, fatness is still one of those last frontiers where people are honestly allowed to say like, I don't date fat people. I don't find them attractive. And what that turns into, um, which is a conversation we don't have a lot, is like people don't hire fat people. We have all these illusions around fat people being um, lazy, even though your mama might look like me. So it's like, what does, how do I get to retell that story from a place of power and um, really highlighting it beyond, you know, when the news coverage was going on, it was about this one moment and not about who I was as a person. So I'm so glad I got to revisit that in this, um, in this right. work to be like, I'm a real person and you, you mess with the right one, sis. She got the right one today. She got the right she one. Got, <laughs> she got the right one today. Um, so Amber, tell me, what does it mean to be a proud, fat, black, queer woman, especially during Pride Month? Yeah, I think what it means for me, um, before I came out or came into my identity as a queer person, um, a lot of the information that I got about Pride as a black person was through not actively trying to learn about it until I was in politics and organizing. Um, and I want people to know, like, it, it's so funny when you hear people talk about like adding, oh, what do you think about pride as a black person? Pride is black. <laughs> we do not have pride without black people. It is a very black, um, uh, indigenous POC driven moment. Stonewall was led, that work was led by black trans um, women, uh, Marsha P. Johnson. So it is a holiday that is just as much ours as Juneteenth. Um, and that's what I want black people to know. I think so often growing up, especially, and that's a theme in the work as well, is I grew up religious and Christian and we try to make it seem like queer people is not of us when actually we are a very queer group of people. We're a queer culture. We're a culture that tries as much as we might to not be based in a very patriarchal, the man leads type. That's why it has to be like kind of reinforced all the time in church of like, we submit to men because we know that's not true. We know when we leave the sanctuary and we go to the fellowship hall, the women are preparing the food. We know that the choir is a little queer. Um, we know that our missionary work is very much led by people who not who don't only identify as cisgender men. Um, one of my favorite shows is Greenleaf, and um, I was 
I love how that story is really about all these women really being the head of that and how important it was for us to see that transition. If you're if you're a fan of Greenleaf, I love me a good churchy show. But um, my what I want black people to know is that pride is ours. I think it's kind of um, um, serendipitous that it happens in the same month as Juneteenth. And especially as someone who came in their queerness in Washington, D.C., it wasn't until I left, like I was introduced to pride through black pride. And that's a pride that doesn't exist everywhere. It's very unique to D.C. in a way that I wasn't aware of. So um, what it means for for me to be black, queer and um, um, proud during this month is to just be who I am. Right. Mm. to be someone who very much, you know, I, I got my degree in African-American studies um, to just be affirmed in who I am. And this is an extension of that. Pride is an extension of Black History Month. And to not know that history is to really cut yourself off from all right. the things that make us a very powerful people. So Emanuela is and shout out to Emanuela, she says via Facebook, speak your truth and preserve. and. Uh, she is also a Greenleaf fan. So yeah. she's that girl for real. Love Greenleaf yeah. through film healing. I was like, yes, shout out to Emanuela. Uh, Michelle, I want to get Michelle's voice into the conversation. And I know you had some thoughts and questions. Yeah, I think what we have to remember is that Black queerness is not new. This is something that dates oh. back very, very far and are, are a part of who we are. And pride is being black and being queer. You look at uh, Bayard Rustin, who was an LGBTQ rights um, advocate and Martin Luther King Jr.'s right hand. Additionally, you look at Huey Newton, who pointed out that women's liberation and gay liberation is no different than black liberation. And that for us all to be free, we have to fight for all of our communities and all of our intersectionalities, because that's what makes us beautiful. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the documentary and all of the things that you're saying. Um, You know, I think that we as a community, we just have to continue to push ourselves to understand and educate and share the knowledge. Because I think the hate that we sometimes see within our own communities is a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge. So thank you for your work. Yeah, and I, I think it's it not only is a lack of understanding, it's a refusal to see ourselves. Yes. I think a lot of us, we know what queerness looks like. Um, there's, you know, around Thanksgiving time, there's all those memes about like your auntie and her friend. We've always been able to identify black queer people. I, I, I'm some kind, sometimes torn on the idea of coming out because I think it's something that exists because of our refusal to see the truth in other people and in ourselves. So when I, I think about it in terms of like just acknowledging our eyes, acknowledging what we see um, in other people and giving them space to be that, really taking the active steps to um, allow people to be gay. Black people be gay, y'all. It's okay. Uh, When you think, I think of like some of our favorite, um, you know, the Clark sisters and all them and Tasha Cobbs. I'm like, who sold the outfit, baby? Who styled you up? (laughs) The hair. So like, we know what it is, right? We know what it is, but we sometimes only want to identify it when it's useful to us and not just to allow people to live their lives as they are truly allow them to be in these spaces because without black queer people you don't have a lot of those things that we love 
We don't right. have um, we don't have the productions that we love. We talk about dance and art and culture that is brought to us through queerness, through Black queerness especially. So mm -hmm. to me, it's about getting people to, you know, really release um, this lens of white supremacy. If you really black and proud, you gotta love your gay brothers and sisters. You gotta love the queers. You gotta love the trans folks. You gotta love all of it because to not is to fall into the hands of white supremacy. You're doing the work of white supremacy to hate us. You're extending that work out to everybody else and you can't do both at the same time. You can't claim to love black people and hate queer, trans um, and lesbians and gay folks um, because you're no better than the white supremacists that you hate. Mm. Amber, okay, girl, you preaching today. Um, <laughs> Amber, so you know, I'm so happy that you talked about visibility because I know through your work, your mission is to use a radical black imagination to create stories, art, culture, and community. Why is it so important for the media to display these positive Im images of you know, the intersectionality of blackness, womanhood, and the queer experience? Um, I think it's so important to put black imagination on display because without it, we are caught up in the imagination, the limited, imagine, the limited imagination of whiteness. Um, I think black imagination is expansive. It allows me to be able to see myself as more than the comic relief um, in a black story. It allows, especially because I'm fat and queer, right? Um, typically when we're, if you go back and look at some of our favorite movie, movies of the 90s, they're very homophobic, they're very fat phobic. Um, you know, recently we had this moment where all of our favorite sitcoms were re-released for streaming and it was really hard to watch a lot of it because that was, that was what I grew up on. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is why it took me until my late 20s to come out. Because um, one way or another, I was taught that being who I am is not not um, favorable, it, it was too much. Um, and I just want people to know that it's not too much. You, we, we can be all these things at once um, and we always have been. So to me, the radical black Im imagination, it gets us things like, you know, people love Black Panther and all these stories. But, um, and I look at some of my favorite work, I really love a Spike Lee movie. And I think he was allowed to do a lot of imagining around the lives of black men. And I wanna see that same thing for black women, femmes and non-binary folk. Mm -hmm. um, so I think through that imagination, we're able to better see what justice and liberation can look like for us right now. That's the beauty of culture. It gives us an image of what's possible even when policy is held up. Um, it shows us how to take care of ourselves, even when we're still discussing if we deserve health care. Um, so I think having black radical imagination on display is um, it is the it is the North Star. It's the it's the railroad. It's the safe houses. It gives us a new way of being. And it's always been black stories that have helped me come into myself um, and to love myself and to be who I am just as a black person, I'm a dark skinned black woman at that, you know, there's, there's not a lot of representation for us outside of what we can't be. Um, so I'm about imagining what we can be. And that's what I hope people always get from my work. Yeah, and it's a, a beautiful thing. You know, one thing I, I wanted to ask you, Amber, is, is just the term 
fat that you use, right? Because fat phobia is a real thing. And I remember offline when I was speaking to the team, I was just like, you know, I feel uncomfortable, like to be honest, saying that word because of the stigma attached to it. But, you know, it, it's part of your mm -hmm. identity. It's, it's mm -hmm. part of, you know, the headline uh, in the in the documentary that you're producing. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you can't help but to say it. So is it is it like a bad word? Is there a double? Is there a, is a negative connotation attached to the word fat? Um, there is a negative connotation attached to the word fat, but that's because people put it there. Right. Even if you don't call me fat, you know, I'm fat. <laughs> Um, and I think that is something that is, to me, fat isn't necessarily an identity. It just is. It's like me, no one would have a problem. I'm 5'11". No one would have a problem calling me tall. And what I want for us, especially, um, I want, what I want for all of us is when we say the word fat, we have to listen to how we're saying it in the, in the ways we're using it. Are we using it to deny people access to their humanity? or to deny ourselves access to our own humanity. If you're like, oh, I look fat in this. What does that mean for you? Mm. What does that honestly mean for you? And that's the kind of the, the working, the unworking we have to do is um, taking some of these terms and being like, where is this placed in my imagination? And it's because for a long time, you're taught that fat is bad. Fat is not good. Fat is not human. Um, fat is other when really it just is. I, I wouldn't deny myself being able to see me. Like I see my arms, I see my tummy and I love all those things about me. So I think that fatness is, I want more people to become comfortable with naming it, but not just naming it in terms of fat people, but really unpacking the ways that you are homophobic, the ways that we're homophobic towards ourselves and others. So um, yeah, it, it can be uncomfortable, especially if the only time you use fat is in negative connotations. Um, mm. I use fat all the time. So it's not like I don't only say it when I'm using it to make a point about something I don't like. So for me, it just is. It's like black. Right. And I think that more people need to use that term and to stop using it for things that aren't real. Like you ate a biscuit today. You're fat. No, honey, you, mm. you are nourished. You, you wanted that biscuit. So God bless, you know, like, I, I think I love the fact that like, yeah, I, I think all these terms are calling us into question, even around being angry. That term is often used to dehumanize black women. So I'm going to use it because being angry is a normal I'm trying not to cuss on your show, honey. But being <laughs> angry is a normal response to an injustice. Yes, it I'm is. I'm not supposed to be indifferent to that. That is a real feeling, just as much as love or happiness or laughter. So to me, it's about using all of these terms in their for what they actually mean, because words do mean things. So for those of you all who are listening who might not identify as fat or you are fat and you're scared to use it, I get that. But I want you to claim that as much as you claim blackness or queerness or flyness or fineness. You know, I think all those exist together. It's a descriptor. Mm. Um, yeah. M Michelle, I know you were nodding your head and go ahead. Did you have a response? <laughs> I mean, I, there's so many things. Um, I think about the Victorian era when when women that were voluptuous were celebrated and how throughout history uh, being voluptuous is a sign of fertility. And I think that that's a lovely thing. And it's almost as if similar to colorism in our communities, we pit against each other. Um, and that's always been a struggle for, for me being lighter and a bit more petite. Um, 
And I, I feel like, again, that goes back to what you're talking about, about white supremacy and, and when you're doing it to each other and for what, right? Like, for what? like I, I grew up and my mother is um, a, a voluptuous woman and she always was like, I'm fat and happy. So when mm -hmm. I grew up, that wasn't a negative thing or fat and sassy. And it just makes me think of a big personality, not necessarily the size of your, your dress size. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I, I would hope that we can find ways that we can celebrate like what what that looks like, what volupt right. being voluptuous looks like instead of pitting against each other. One time right. I said, I feel curvy to one of my friends. And she was like, girl, you you ain't got no curves. You might have some sass, but you ain't got no ass. I mean, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and it, it made me feel like I was less than because I wasn't as voluptuous. And I don't ever want to make other people feel like they're not enough because they are. I think that we're all voluptuous when we start to just put our, our attitudes, whether we're angry, whether we're like, whatever it is, you're you're fine, you're this, you're that, but I love what you did with this film and documentary yeah. incredible. Yeah. Amber, before before you, I just want to piggyback on and on what something that Michelle just said, because there is a lot of emphasis on body type and size, and obviously, you know, being being all for the body positivity movement. Um, but do you think that we just as a society just put too much emphasis? on just looks and, and body because, you know, obviously, you know, the fat phobias are real and people are stigmatized for being voluptuous and for being big. But, you know, why, you know, people, if even if you are, you know, smaller or whatever, you are always hearing something negative about our bodies, especially right. as women. Yeah, I think when you, we exist in a, a, a capitalism all right so that means when there's something to be sold to us it will be sold to us no matter what um that if that we're always taught to feel like we're less than so that we will buy something to make us feel better right and this is this is the um big aha moment with fat phobia is that all of us are suffering from it even or all of us are oppressed by it regardless of our size we're all taught that our body should be what it is. There's an amazing book, which was a big catalyst for me being a storyteller written by Sonia Renee Taylor called The Body Is Not An Apology, period. Mm. Regardless of how your body is, you do not have to make any apologies for it. You get to decide how you adorn it and dress it. And that's something to know all of us can take from that. But too often in our society, we base on what is a good body based on who doesn't have a favorable body. Right. So as long as you, you can be this, as long as you ain't that fat, you can be curvy as long as you ain't this curvy. Right. And I think that is it causes a society, especially for black women and girls. It causes a society of dysmorphia. We are always looking at our bodies um, as what what they are lacking instead of the fact that like, wow, this these hips got me through this. I had these hips in college when I was going through this thing or these breasts are what led me um, to, you know, be loved by myself or I like these things. I, I like to put body lotion on, you know, um, so I really recommend that. But the body is not an apology because it just lays out how important it is for us to divest from these systems of basically white terrorism on our bodies, on everybody's bodies and patriarchy and all these things. And I, um, to answer that question, I, I could talk about bodies all day, but I just want people to know that there's something 
there's something in this for all of us. Um, when we allow bodies to exist just as they are, we all get a little bit more free. And that's one of those books that I say is required reading, um, especially as you're navigating all these things, because, you know, especially with Instagram, so much is being sold to us about what we should look like. Jasmine Sullivan wrote a whole album about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I really encourage that because as I, I hope that me, I hardly, this is what I wanted to say. In terms of fatness, um, we still have to acknowledge that the biggest and blackest of us are experiencing the most oppression. When mm. we think about last year, George Floyd was called Big Floyd. Breonna Taylor was a bigger body person. Um, in Mike Brown's um, uh, uh, police files, they referred to him as the Hulk. Tamir Rice was described as Husky. So we know that being bigger is a, a determination for being less human. And it is what's killing a lot of us, not just in terms of not having access to the things we need, but it is we're being painted as dangerous because we're big. We are a bigger people, period. Black people mm. are big, we're colossal. Um, so I think that we yeah. have to acknowledge that yes, we want smaller body people to be accepted, but we have to acknowledge the ways that bigger body, darker people are also being murdered because of those things. Absolutely. And those justifications are honestly used to oppress you as well. When someone goes to the doctor, when I go to the doctor and people say they're unwilling to treat me for something, um, uh, give me a proper pap smear because they wanna talk about weight loss, that same harshness and technology is being used on your body. Right, we know black maternal health is an issue. That's because when bigger body black people go in there, they're not seen as human. And then they spread that out to all of us. They oppress all of us with that. So yeah. I think it's important to really name and be specific about who's being the most harmed. Amber, I just want to thank you again so much for joining us today, speaking truth to power and dedicating your life and your work um, to talking about the intersectionality of being black, of being fat, of being queer and showing up as your whole authentic self. Mm -hmm. um, because it is very empowering for all of us to see you living your authentic truth. It, it, it inspires me and inspires a lot of other people for us to do the same exact thing. So mm -hmm. thank you, Amber. Um, I, we do have to wrap, but if you could just tell us quickly how we can get access to support your film and the work you're doing. Yes. So right now we had the film out for seven days. It is a lot of work to get a short film up and running. Um, so the next time you will, I one, I would recommend that you all follow um, my, me online, Amber Abundance. That is on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, just at Amber Abundance. Um, you can also head over to my website, amberabundance.com and join that email list because the next time you all will be able to see Abundance, I'll have a big announcement about that later on in the month. But we are looking to um, keep traveling this piece um, and it's now going to take on a life of its own. I had it up for seven days to give writers and people and black audiences time to digest it and sit with it. And then um, I'll be announcing soon when you can see it again and you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. Do not want to miss it. Follow her, <laughs> Amber Abundance. Thank you again, Queen. Thank you, Michelle, for joining me for this conversation as well. We are going to end this show on a positive note. For this week's Black Women Rise, we are honoring our Haitian Japanese queen, Naomi Osaka. 
Now, the tennis star currently holds the number one ranking with the Women's Tennis Association. And she made a splash, no, a title wave on the tennis scene after beating her idol, Serena Williams, back in 2018. Uh, and she became a household name and one of the wealthiest athletes of her time. Now, Osaka announced that she would not be doing any press after her games to prioritize her mental health during the French Open. This was met with deep criticism from the notoriously racist tennis press community, a fine and defiantly brave withdrawal from the relatively new player, Osaka. They thought that they would add pressure to her and she peaced out. So we honor and salute a black woman who understands self-care and who puts on for the world stage. Naomi Osaka, you are truly a world-class athlete and role model. Keep it up, sis. On that note, I want to thank everyone who tuned in to Be Her Talk with Selena Hill today. Remember to continue to follow us and to support us by buying me a coffee. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Be Her Talk. Remember that your support will continue to support our efforts to amplify and talk about the issues and causes that you care about. Until next week, take care.